WTBN, Pinellas Park, W262CP, Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in new portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. But also, there's a third element in biblical preaching, and that is uh, exhort the people to obey it. Until I come to pay attention to reading the text, to exhorting the people as well as, as teaching them doctrine, exhort the people to implement the scriptures. In other words, now that you have had it read to you, and now that you understand what it means, what do you do with this? That's what you ought to ask yourself every time you hear the word ministered, every time you open the Bible and have devotions, every time you read the word, what do I do with this? What does God want me to do in terms of response? God certainly didn't spend hundreds and hundreds of years getting the Bible written down, much less preserving it over the ensuing centuries for us to be entertained. It has a purpose. That purpose, among other things, is to reveal His character and show the path by which we sinners can be reconciled to Him. But like any map, it only works if we read it and follow it. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve is taking us through chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a wonderful source of biblical principles for leadership. But within that narrative, we find here in chapter 8 something remarkable. There was a tremendous spiritual awakening, a good old-fashioned revival, if you will. Are you praying for revival in your church, or maybe revival for our nation? I know I am. And prayer is essential, but there is another essential, and that is God's Word. Good preaching reads and explains the text, and then it challenges us to do what the text says. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 as Pastor Steve continues his series about biblical principles of revival. I, uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. We want to conclude our study of the 8th chapter of Nehemiah. I think it's been a... Um, Marvelous opportunity for us as a church to really get down to some nitty-gritty things concerning listening to the Word of God and how to understand the Word of God, and then this morning what to do once we understand the Word of God, and that is, of course, responding in application to the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 8, and we're starting at verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the, Lord, uh, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, and to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests, and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths, 
during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all the cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and olive uh, and olive uh, branches uh, and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of, of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Great passage of scripture. And we're going to, by the time you leave today, you'll understand this passage of scripture. Recently, I read about two men who were leaving church on Sunday morning, and uh, as they were leaving, one man arose from his pew and said, well, the sermon is over. But the other man replied to him, no, now is when the sermon is just beginning. See, one had the perspective, it's over, that's it, let's leave. The other had the right biblical perspective that when the sermon ends, that's really when it's only beginning. And that's good because it reminds us that, that we as the people of God have a responsibility to, to uh, reply to the Word of God in terms of obedience. We have a responsibility to put God's Word into practice. We have a responsibility to respond to the Word. You, you must realize that a sermon, a message, whatever you want to call it, is absolutely worthless unless you implement the Word of God. It is absolutely worthless unless the Word of God is implemented in your lives and you allow it to change you. Then it's pure academics. Then it's, then it's like philosophy. What do you do with that stuff? In fact, I, I heard of a, um, of a church who had a unique way of reminding their people uh, to obey the Word of God. On the back of the church sign, these words were written so that when the people left the church, these were the last words they, they heard and read. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. That's really good. That's really helpful. Uh, maybe we should do that in our church. As you go out, you see that sign. Be doers of the word and not only hearers. Uh, recently, somebody asked me this, a pastor asked me this. He said, what is the difference between preaching and any other form of verbal communication? Do you know what the difference is? What's the difference between preaching and, let's say, teaching? What's the difference between preaching and, uh, and giving a lecture? What's the difference between preaching and just giving a speech? The answer to that is this, that preaching demands a response. That's the difference. Preaching demands a response. Built into the very concept of preaching is that what you preach from God's Word demands a response by the people who heard that Word. In fact, I'd I'd like you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 because uh, that's not my opinion. The Word teaches that. The Apostle Paul had left Timothy at Ephesus And having left him there, he needed to give him instructions on how to behave himself in the household of God, how to straighten out that uh, church, and uh, what to do before Paul arrives there. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, give attention, give attention, pay attention, Timothy, to this, pay attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. 
You know what? That's a great definition of expository preaching, biblical preaching. Until I come, I want you to pay attention to three things. First of all, pay attention that you read the Scriptures publicly. Good biblical preaching reads the Scriptures. Just reads it. Just reads it. It gets up. It opens the Bible. This is what the Bible says. But what does the Bible mean by what it says? So good biblical preaching has to, after reading the text, it has to explain the text or teach it. And that's what, that's what Paul told Timothy, to pay attention to doctrine, to teaching. Explain what that text that you just read means. But also, there's a third element in biblical preaching, and that is uh, ex- exhort the people to obey it. Until I come, Timothy, pay attention to reading the text, to exhorting the people as well as, as teaching them doctrine. Exhort the people to implement the scriptures. In other words, now that you have had it read to you, and now that you understand what it means, what do you do with this? That's what you ought to ask yourself every time you hear the word ministered, every time you open the Bible and have devotions, every time you read the word, what do I do with this? What does God want me to do in terms of response? In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see all three of these elements happening, but not from the standpoint of the speaker. This is a unique chapter. This is a chapter that tells us about these three elements from the standpoint of the congregation. It really gives you, as the people of God, instruction on how to receive the Word of God. Because we read that these people listened from early morning until noon. They listened to the Word read publicly. Notice Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 3. And he read, meaning Ezra, from from it, from, from the law, it means, before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra read for hours from the law of God and the people listened. They were attentive. They heard the word preached. Secondly, they understood the word that was preached. And we looked at this last week, verse 7 and verse 8 of this chapter tell us this. And look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. The people listened to the word, and now they understood. They comprehended what the word of God was about. The Levites circulated amongst the people and translated it from the Hebrew into probably Aramaic and said, do you understand this? Do you need any clarification on this? And they explained to them what it was about. Now this morning, we want to take it a step further and see that not only did these people hear the word, not only did they listen attentively, which is what we're supposed to do, not only did they understand the word of God, which is what we're supposed to do, but these people took it a step further and they responded to the word of God. They responded to it. They listened, they understood, then they implemented it. And that's what chapter 8 is really about. That's the thrust of it, at least the end of, of this chapter, the people's response to what God had explained to them out of his word. Now, this is very important, perhaps more important than you and I really comprehend at this point. I hope before you leave today, you'll realize that this is critical. This is critical. Why is this important? Number one, it's important... Because James chapter 1 tells us that if you don't apply the word of God, uh, you will be deceived. Let's look at James chapter 1 verse 22. Remember that verse that I said that church put on their sign that said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Notice what the whole thing says. James chapter 1 verse 22. A lot of people miss this point. They really think they have an option that if they don't obey, they don't apply it, uh, it's okay. 
Uh, it's not okay. You're going to be deceived. James 1.22 says, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And then that last phrase say, says this, Who delude or deceive themselves. That's very significant. If you don't apply the word, if you're not a, a doer of the word, if you only hear the word, you deceive yourself. What does that mean? The Greek word uh, means to deceive through false reasoning. In other words, your thinking is faulty. You, you are self-deceived if you only listen to a sermon and you never apply it. You don't apply it to your life. You don't go out of here and say, now this is what I'm going to do in response to the word. You will deceive yourselves through false reasoning. What, what does James mean? He means this, if we don't apply God's word, then we have deceived ourselves into thinking that, that uh, what we've done, all that we've done in listening to the sermon is enough. It's enough. I've come to church, I put on my best clothes, I've sat in the, in the pews, and I've listened to the sermon, and you'll deceive yourself into thinking, that's enough. I'll grow by that. I'm being a good little Christian, and that's what God requires. After all, I was in church. I'm faithful. I may even come Sunday night and go through the same routine. You deceive yourselves. You deceive yourself into thinking that that's enough. It's enough to just listen to the word of God. You'll grow. You'll be fine. You're doing what God wants. And James says, that's deception. That's deception. You must implement the word of God. So, number one, it's important application because you'll be deceived if you don't apply the word. You'll be deceived into thinking you're growing and you're fine when you're really not. You cannot grow, by the way, with, without, without this. And that's really the second point, without application. The second reason why it's so important is because uh, you will never grow. You will never, never, ever spiritually grow just by taking in listening and understanding the word. You may have a swelled head, but you won't have a changed heart. There are a lot of people like that. A lot of people like that. We cannot grow unless we apply the word of God. It's given to us to change us, not to fill our heads with information. The third reason why application is so important is because uh, so few believers really change. So few believers really change. And, and uh, our congregation is really a great congregation, but, but for the most part, uh, many, many, if not most believers, do not have a plan to change as a result of listening to a sermon or even reading the word themselves. They read it and they don't change. And somehow we think that's okay. That's not okay. That's not okay. We don't change. Um, we may think at the end of a service, uh, we may think that was a good sermon. Or we may think uh, we may be emotionally stirred by a sermon, or we may be intellectually challenged by a sermon. But if we're not moved to change, then it's absolutely useless, and it means that you are not growing. And I wouldn't want you to be deceived. This is what the Bible calls progressive sanctification. Sometimes we even apply that to our devotions. You know, there are many people who have devotions that are absolutely meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. They don't learn anything, they read it. And they pray, and they, they don't apply it to their lives, and they think that they're growing. And they can check off that that day they did their reading, they did their, their devotions. Uh, somehow they think they can't open a commentary then, they can't open a concordance, they can't have any study helps. It's just going to happen in some mystical, spooky way that they're going to grow. It doesn't work like that. 
Let me just illustrate how, um, how this works in terms of how you can listen to a sermon and yet it not impact your life. Uh, I read this week about a man who, who uh, wrote this. This was his experience. Happened a number of years ago. Apparently, he was on some type of a boat going down a river. And here's what he said. He was a preacher. And, and just listen to this. This is very, very typical. Uh, I've seen things like this happen here. Every pastor could say something like this. This is this pastor's experience. We're coming down the Ohio. There's a pleasant company of some two score persons. They know that I'm on board and they come to me with a request. Will you give us a Sunday morning talk? And it's arranged. And I preach to them in my way. I talk to them taking from my text this passage in honor, preferring one another. So you understand he's on a boat. He's going down the Ohio River. They learn he's a preacher. Uh, He's a well-known preacher. They say, will you give us a Sunday service, Sunday sermon, and he speaks in honor, preferring one another. That's his text. I show them how beautiful it is. I illustrate it. I show them how beautiful it is to prefer those who are inferior. I tell them how grand and noble a man feels who treats his servants, the lowest of them, with a consideration which makes them uh, more manly. I can, uh, can see one another drop a tear or wipe it away. And so I go on, opening up the beauty of uh, disinterestedness and studying uh, one another's happiness. I keep talking to them in this strain until I perceive that dinner is ready to be served, and I give out a hymn and sung, and I close the meeting, then the gong sounds, and every man tears for the dining door, for the dinner door. Every man rushes for the table, pulling and hauling and trying to get the best place opposite the choicest dish, and everybody goes to eating with all his might, and nobody waits on anybody. Now remember, he's just preached on in honor preferring one another. And when they have gorged themselves, they begin to wipe their faces and say, we had a good sermon this morning. At the very first opportunity they had of carrying out the principle, their old nature, their old life, their old habits prevailed. Now that's frightening. I notice nobody's really laughing. Well, a few. Um, you're probably silent because you're stunned. Listen, that happens a lot. Do you understand what he did? He spoke about preferring one another, and they cried. They thought it was a great sermon. And then they rushed out, and nobody preferred one another. Do you understand that a sermon is useless unless it's implemented? And they had an opportunity to implement it, and they did absolutely nothing with it. And yet we think we're growing. These folks aren't growing. And if we do the same thing, or whatever the sermon is on, uh, we're not growing. We deceive ourselves into thinking we're growing. So uh, how should we respond to a sermon? That's what we want to look at this morning. And in Nehemiah 8, we're given, thank God we're given some things that you can get a hold on and you can implement in your life. We're given four biblical responses to the word. These are the four biblical responses they had to the word. And I believe it's a pattern for us. Now, let me say this. All these responses won't take place every time you hear God's word. But this is the general pattern most of the time. Okay, so you'll know, you'll know. Four responses to the word of God. The first response to God's word when it's preached in a sermon or any other time is sorrow. Sorrow, that's the first response. That's the first uh, way of responding to the word of God. Notice verse nine. Then Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. After listening to the word of God all day long, the congregation began to weep. They began to cry. Why? It's called conviction of sin. 
They were mourning over their sin. They mourned over their sin. They were grieved over their sin. They were exposed to what the law said, and they realized they hadn't done this, and they were sorrowful. This is what the New Testament refers to as as godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of behavior as well. It's It's a change of our thinking. It's godly sorrow, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, leads to repentance. And while we may not shed literal tears all the time, when we hear God's word, our hearts should break. Our hearts should break. Unless it's a kind of message to build you up and encourage you, generally speaking, our hearts should break because the word of God reveals our sin. And we ought to be sensitive to the Lord and care enough that our hearts mourn over our sin. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So as you read the word of God, you are convicted of your sin. And our response to that knowledge is to mourn. That's what Jesus meant when he said in the the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When the Holy Spirit is really working in in your life, you're not hysterical. You're mourning. You're mourning. You're crying over your sin. When you listen to the word and you understand the word, it'll break your heart. It breaks your heart. Because you now know how you have sinned against God. Now let me explain to you, this is the difference between an unbeliever's sorrow and a believer's sorrow. When an unbeliever is, has his sin exposed, uh, he has some sorrow, he feels bad. He feels bad usually because of the consequences of his sin. He hurts somebody and uh, he feels bad that also he was caught, quite frankly. A lot of his sorrow is in the fact that he didn't get away with it anymore. And he's sorrowful, and he feels bad, and he usually uh, makes some promises that he'll change, but he doesn't, so he feels more guilty than ever before. That's the sorrow of an unbeliever over his sin, if he has some sorrow over sin. A believer, on the other hand, the child of God, one of the marks of a child of God is that uh, when he sins, he's convicted because, not, not primarily because of the consequences, and not primarily because he was caught, in fact, not at all because he was caught, he is, he is mourning because he has sinned against his heavenly father. And he knows he has displeased God. And that really makes him sad. Even if nobody else knew about it. Even if there were no other consequences. He's broken hearted because he has sinned against his heavenly father. He has sinned against the one who loves him more than he can comprehend. And therefore his sorrow leads to repentance. Because he's broken hearted. He will change his thinking. He will change his behavior. That's the difference. And that's that's what's going on here. You know, conviction of our hearts sting. It just stings our heart. It just hurts. It hurts like nothing else. I know you've experienced that. Certainly I've experienced that. The conviction of God stings. It it, stings. It is a, a sorrow like no other sorrow. And the first step is in obeying God. That's the first step to dealing with this, is in obedience and pleasing the Lord. So what I want to say to you is don't resist God's conviction. It was great to have you with us today as Pastor Steve Kreloff teaches from Nehemiah chapter 8 about the biblical principles of revival. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
If you want to visit Lakeside some Sunday, you'll get a friendly welcome to go along with the great Bible teaching available here on Verse by Verse. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. For service times, call 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. Verse by Verse is listener supported, so we thank you for your gifts and prayers that help us stay on the air. If you'd like to give, there's a giving page on our website, versebyverseradio.org. Or you can talk to someone at Lakeside about giving by phone or by mail. That number again is 727-441-1714. Another feature on our website is the Message Archive page. All of the files are free for you to stream or download. It's a great way to catch up if you missed a broadcast. Or you can use it to introduce someone to Verse by Verse who might not be able to listen at the right time. That's versebyverseradio.org. I'd also like to take a few seconds to tell our blind listeners about a special offer. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and you want a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit blindbibles.com. That's blindbibles.com or call 800-838-5924. This is Jerry Peterson. It's never pleasant to learn that something's wrong, is it? It might be a health issue or a personal relationship or even something